Today's lesson is kind of a crossover lesson, so it's kind of two subjects in one, if you will. I said earlier this month that I was going to contribute the entire month of November to friends, family, and personal evangelism. And we've had some lessons on friends already, and we're going to have a lesson today kind of on friends and family a little bit, if you will. The next Sunday, Lord willing, we will talk about what a friend we have in Jesus. And then the last Sunday of the month, the fifth Sunday, we'll talk about being a part of God's family. Personal evangelism series continues uh, on in the evening time tonight. Would you come out with us and join us and, and understand why people don't think that they need to come to church maybe a little bit. And when we realize that, we realize what our responsibilities are as Christians seeking and saving the lost just as Jesus came to this earth to do. And we are commanded that we are to do the same thing. So if you would, join us at 5 o'clock tonight for continuation of that series. But tonight, the, the, today, the, the title of the lesson today is, What Would They Say to Me? And I don't think you're going to really grasp that until further on into the lesson just a little bit, why that is the title. And I'll explain that as we continue on. But in continuation of this thought of friends and family, what I want to talk about today is family. I did something a few weeks back when I was in West Virginia. I mentioned one night, and I don't have enough time to do that now. You can think about it, though. But I mentioned if there were a way we could list ten people that on a piece of paper, if we just took out a piece of paper and wrote ten people's names, and we could submit that list to God and say, I want these people in heaven. Of course, that's hypothetical. That's not going to happen. We know that. But what if we could do that? Who are the ten people you would list? Now, I'm not specifically saying names or, you know, most people will come up and they will immediately say family. And I get that. I understand that. And most people would also say friends. I get that. And I'll tell you a little bit later on what my thoughts are on what my ten people would be and why. Family. Who are they? When we think about family, we think about the wife that is listed, the mother and the wife that is listed in Proverbs chapter 31. The, the good woman that is described there. We think about the husband in Ephesians chapter 5. You know, the husband is to be the head of the house, just like Christ is the head of the church. We think about the, the sons and the daughters. We think about parents. You know, there's eight direct verses in the Bible about honoring your father and mother. Children. The Bible tells us to bring up our children in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. We have these things that are commanded to us. What about siblings? You know, we think of brothers and sisters. We have some brothers and sisters in the church, family brothers and sisters in the church, and, and, and we get that. Those are our family. Cousins. You know, I think about John the Baptist. You know, he was a cousin to Jesus. Most people kind of look over that, or many people do. He was a cousin to Jesus. And aunts, uncles, grandson, grandparents, grandsons, granddaughters. These are our family. You know, the, the old saying goes that blood is thicker than water, right? <laughs> well, Maybe. But we're going to talk about that too a little bit. What are some of the aspects or responsibility of the benefits of family? I saw Jacob come in today carrying a purse. <laughs> it wasn't his purse, but that's one of the responsibilities of the family. You do what you need to do for each other. Diaper bags, you know, for smaller children. You know, as parents, when my children were small, that was one of the tasks that, that, that I was responsible for some days was toting that big old diaper bag. And, and, and women, I don't know how in the world y'all put so many things in those things. But purses are the same way. But men, when you're, when you're tasked to carry that purse, you better carry it. It doesn't matter. Meals. You know, we're responsible as parents, as, as, as siblings, as, as uh, I think about my dad when he had to stay with me a few weeks ago. You know, we had to help him with, with his meals. My, my wife's mother, you know, she, she has to have help with her meals. She can't prepare them all by herself. 
And, and we're responsible for that. Well, you know what? I think about that in my lifetime as a child. My mother was responsible for my meals too. My father was responsible for my meals too. So, so it's kind of a turnabout, if you will. Family. Doctor's visits. I had to do a lot of that lately with, uh, with family. Well, you know, when, when Jesus placed responsibility, when, when he was on the cross there, and, and John, the, 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 the disciple whom he loved, was standing there, and, and his mother, and Jesus placed that responsibility. He said, he said here's your mother, and mother, here's your son. You know, he gave that responsibility over. It was a family responsibility. Now, John wasn't family to Mary, but, but Jesus made them family. Proverbs 22, verse 6, train up a child in the way he should go. And when he is old, he will not depart from it. That's a responsibility of family. You know, what about the importance of family? Did you know that one of the most visited websites in the in, in, I don't know if you'd say in the world, but in time, lately in the last few years, is Ancestry.com. <laughs> Some people are addicted. And, and, and I understand. I mean, that, I, I, several years ago, I got searching for some of my own family. I wanted to find out who, who I came from. I came from Enoch. Enoch Farrell, 1700s. <laughs> there was an Elijah, there was an Enoch, and there was another Enoch, and another Elijah. And finally, they got out of that transition and made some more names, but... Uh, but I got it back to the mid 1700s when they came over from Scotland or Ireland or somewhere. I, I've got it, you know. I've got the, I've got a record. I found a cousin I didn't know I had up in New York that had compiled things for years about family, and I was able to look through it and I immediately saw some things that she didn't have correct. And I sent her back and I said, "Hey, listen, I, these people aren't related here. You, you said they're brother and sister, and they, they ain't brother and sister." And uh, she said, "Well, how do you know?" I said, "Because I'm looking at one of them. <laughs> you know, I mean, because they're my family. They're my family. They're direct family." But a good name, you know, some people look up those things because they want to have a good name. And they want to know that their family's been well respected. You know, a lot of times we think about war veterans and, and uh, this, this past week we, we talked about Veterans Day. And, and, and when we look at those things and we, we go to the cemeteries, if you will, we see pictures of the soldiers that died for us, for our country, and we see that name. It's a good name. It's important. It's a family. And you think about people that are on their deathbed. What do they want? They don't usually want something material. They want their family. When they want that family, it's important. And you know, we have plenty of examples of family in the Bible and why family is important. I mean, you look at, you think about Peter and Andrew. <laughs> you know, we think of Peter being one of the greatest, greatest apostles there were. He was one of Jesus' best friends. Without Andrew, Peter wouldn't have been around, would he? You know, you think about family, family reaching out to others. What about James and John? Same situation. They were brothers. They were apostles together. They were brothers. What about Lois and Eunice? You know, we talk about Timothy a lot. I, I, I love Timothy. Timothy gives me example. I read First and Second Timothy quite, quite frequently because it gives me the example that I need to be when I'm working for the church. But you know who was responsible for Timothy's upbringing? His mother and his grandmother. Now, I don't know how old his grandmother was, but I, I adore that woman because she made sure that her grandson knew what he needed to know about the Bible. Timothy's dad, my understanding was he, he was not, he, if it had been up to his dad, he wouldn't have been where he was. And you know, many times when we read in the Bible, we read the, 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 the analogies and the, uh, uh, I believe Tammy told me yesterday she was reading through First Chronicles and she asked me if it was a lot of genealogy. Yes, it is. First nine chapters, right, Tammy? 
And it says the son of, the son of, the son of, the son of. You go to Matthew and you say the same thing, the son of. And you know, even, even Simon, bar Jonah, son of Jonah, son of Jonah. When you see these things and you understand there is a close tie in the Bible to family. Very close. Look at what Ruth said. But Ruth said, Entreat me not to leave you or to turn back from following after you. For wherever you go, I will go. And wherever you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die and there will I be buried. The Lord do so to me. And more also. If anything but death parts you and me. And that's in Ruth chapter 1, verses 16 and 17. You see, she's talking about an in-law. Still family, isn't it? Family, family. So important. Now I want to shift gears just a little bit. Turn, if you will, to Luke chapter 16. Luke chapter 16. And I know I've recently talked about this passage, but I want to talk about it again because it's very important how it deals with family. Very, very important. And I think that we can't, uh, we can't learn about family until we see the importance of family. Now, on the back of the final word this morning, I want to tell you a little story. That picture, I'm going to try my best. On March 30th, 2012, 7.52 in the morning, I got that picture emailed to me. from my mom. Seven forty-seven, March thirty-first. I got the call from my dad. She was gone. What would they say to me? <clears throat> Verse 19, familiar passage. There was a certain rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen and fared sumptuously every day. And I want to spend a few minutes on exegetical study on this passage. This man was, was in, in fine purple and fine linens. Now, I don't think we get that today. I don't think we understand. I see a couple of people wearing some purple out here in the audience. And that's okay. I wear purple a lot too. I probably should have worn purple today. But they were wearing purple and fine linens. It took a lot to make purple dye in those times. There was a shell, I looked it up, I can't pronounce it, but it's some shell that took like thousands of them to make one, one iota basically of purple dye. That's how the value of purple was. And if you remember, there's some stories in the New Testament about the, the selling of purple. Lydia was a seller of purple. You go back in the Old Testament, you find more stories about purple and how valuable it was. Revelations even talks about it. Talks about the purple and how valuable. Also, the same thing with the fine linens. You know, we, we, we think of fine linens today as sheets usually, but you know, this fine linen, if I've done my study correctly and I've been studying the Greek on this passage all week long to try to understand more in depth of what I'm looking at, these fine linens may have been his, his evening attire, if you will. I mean, he was, he was, this wasn't his everyday clothes he went out in. This is what he got home and he put on because he was home. You know, he was in fine linens. Fine linens. You think of your best attire and think about, well, that's what I'm going to wear when I get home and retire for the evening. 
Now, I'll be honest, I put on usually a pair of sweatpants and a sweatshirt. I'm not dressed in fine linens, if you will, when I get home. Some people might think that, though. They might think that is fine linen. But it says he fared sumptuously every day. Y'all know what that means? That means he was comfortable. He was very comfortable. He was able to turn his TV on in our day and time, if you will. He was able to kick back in his recliner, if you will. He had a cell phone, an iPhone, whatever. You know, that's, of course, I'm speaking hypothetically, but, but that's how he was. He didn't want for anything. This man had no desire for anything. If he wanted it, he got it. He fared sumptuously. But there was a certain beggar named Lazarus, full of sores, who was laid at his gate. Now I want to go back to that word laid. That word laid, somebody carried that man every day and put him at the gate of this rich man that dwelt there. Why? I mean, they saw that he wasn't getting any help, but they carried him and he was laid at his gate, desiring to be fed with the crumbs which fell from the rich man's table. Now, I heard Brother Larry Acuff explain this a couple months back, and I never realized what it meant, I don't think. And I tried to do a little research on it, and I can, I can see both sides of, you know, we think of crumbs mean just, you know, crumbs. Something in the floor. You know, if I took a biscuit and rubbed it, it would give crumbs. Brother Larry Acuff presented that, you know, in those times, people didn't have running water and, and, and uh, uh, antibacterial soap that they could wash their hands with. And many times, the, the richer, the more affluent would have extra bread made to do what with? To wipe their hands on, to clean their hands. And that was considered crumbs because it was waste. It was leftovers. Lazarus just wanted some crumbs. Now, whether that be the crumbs that we would think of today or whether that be the leftover bread that he washed his hands with and discarded, it doesn't matter. Lazarus just wanted something. He wanted something. It says, moreover, the dogs came and licked his sores. Now, uh, now our, our good faithful friend Cokie's sitting there at the door right now. And if we had a wound, I don't know that we would want Cokie to lick our wound. But you know what? Lazarus probably, that was probably the only relief he had for those wounds. He didn't have antibiotic cream. He didn't have, he didn't have cold patches or anything like that to put on there. So that lick of the dog was comforting to him. Now, the reason I'm going into this exegetical part of this is because I want you to understand. I want you to see the picture. Look at the gate. Look at the, the big fancy house on the hill, if you will. And you see this man laying there. Verse 22, so it was that the beggar died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's bosom. And then look what happened. The rich man also died and was buried. You see the contrast there? You know, Lazarus died, this, this, this beggar died, and it says that the angels carried him to Abraham. But what little was said about the rich man. The rich man also died and was buried. Now I want you to think about the most extravagant, and I, and I know it's hard to think about this in terms of it, but the most extravagant funeral you ever went to. The most extravagant funeral that you ever went to. And multiply times ten, that's probably that rich man's funeral. He could do anything he wanted. He had all the money he needed. You know, he, he probably had planned. He probably had the best tomb and, you know, the, the, the best burial spot in town, right? You know, that's, that was very difficult for us to, to, to pick out the funeral arrangements for my mother. 
but we did. And we, we, we decided to make it a grand farewell, if you will. But it didn't matter. Because just like the rich man, just like Lazarus, she was gone. It really didn't matter if, 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 if the, 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 she was in a purple casket, a light purple casket. She hated purple. <laughs> Some of those things we did kind of, <laughs> she hated roses too. And I wrote a bunch of roses at her funeral. We didn't do that. <laughs> but those things that, that, that we did were more for us than they were for her. But the rich man, he had the greatest funeral that he could have, more than likely. But it says in verse 23, I want you to see the transition here. You know, he had all he wanted, but look at what 23 says. And being in torments and Hades, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham afar off and Lazarus in his bosom. Now, I want you to grasp something here. Now, it didn't hit me until yesterday as I'm reading through this again. As we continue looking in verse 24, then he cried and said, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus that he may dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am tormented in this flame. You see, when you stop learning something, you die. <laughs> and I'm going to tell you, I learned something yesterday. I don't think I've ever looked at the in-depth part of that, those two verses right there. It says that the rich man looked up and saw Abraham. And it also says that he saw Lazarus. And then he cries out and says, Father Abraham. I'm going to show you the time. This man had to have been of some sort of religious mindset because he called Abraham father. Now, I'm not saying father in the, in the denominational term. I'm saying he called him father. Remember, God promised Abraham he would be the father of many nations. So this man knew who Abraham was. It wasn't just something that he looked out and said, oh, okay, that guy's wearing a name badge. His name's Abraham. You know what? He did the same thing with Lazarus, didn't he? He named Lazarus. He named him. <laughs> he knew who Lazarus was. He just wasn't some beggar sitting in his gate. He knew who he was. He knew him. Now, I don't know how well he knew him, but he knew his name. That's what I picked up out of it. Now, you may disagree with me on that, but I tell you, I think, uh, think when you look at the next verse, he said, but Abraham said, Son, remember that in your lifetime you received your good things, and likewise Lazarus evil things, but now he is comforted and you are tormented. You notice Abraham calls him son. Seems that Abraham knew him too. That son is, uh, is the Greek word that's translated also as child. So, I mean, it's not, it wasn't Abraham's actual child. We, we get that. But when he said, you will be the father of many nations, wouldn't that make any of those that were in the Jewish descent a child of Abraham? Those that did the things that the Jews did? So, you see, I think that there is a closer tie-in here than what we really realize sometimes. I think that instead of reading this story, and of course, I know some, some people want to say this is a parable. Some people say, want to say it's real. You know, I have, I've been on both sides of that equation. I, I think it's a real true story, but either way, the end of it is the same result. Whether it's a parable or true, Jesus is telling us what's going to happen at death. It doesn't matter which one it is, really. But when we look at it and we see there's a real close tie-in here, Abraham knew the rich man, and the rich man knew Abraham. The rich man knew Lazarus. 
<coughs> also noticed in my study that Lazarus never said a word. Come up to that rich man is begging. Lazarus seems to be content. But he says, he wants him to dip the finger in his water, uh, dip the tip of his finger in water. And, and I found that interesting too. I, I, I went through and just spot checked all these Greek words that, I've, that I'm reading. I'm trying to teach myself Greek a little bit. And, and I promise I will not bring a lot of Greek to the pulpit because I don't expect you to understand it. But I want to understand it. And so I'm spot checking these words and the word dip, guess what it means? Immerse. <laughs> Immerse. It's the same root word as baptism. Baptizo. Bapto. It's the same word. So dip. Now the reason I say that is because when we talk about baptism, we talk about fully being submerged. Immersed in the water. He didn't say sprinkle on his finger. He said dip. But it says in verse 26, And besides all this between us and you, there is a great gulf fixed. So that those who want to pass from here to you cannot, nor can those from there pass to us. You see, Abraham describes it as sort of life and death, if you will. While we're here on this earth, I can talk to you face to face. I can come up, I can shake your hand. I can throw a dum-dum at you and wake you up if you're asleep. <laughs> Picking on Paul, I told him if he went to sleep, I'd throw a dum-dum at him from up here. But I can touch you. You can touch me. You can talk to me. But Abraham says here, there's a great gulf between us. There's a space. There's an abyss. There's, a, there, there's this, this, this no way you can come. It's a chasm is what the word is. There's this space between us. We can't come to you and you can't come to us. I find it interesting they're able to talk to each other. Then he said, verse 27, I beg you, therefore, Father, that you would send him to my father's house. For I have five brothers that he may testify to them, lest they also come to this place of torment. You see, there's the heart of the lesson. That one verse is where I was wanting to go. I have five brothers. And I want him to go and testify to them so that they don't end up in this place of torment. You know, I want to, I want to expand on that a little bit more. I've already illustrated to you that I believe that Abraham knew Lazarus and Lazarus knew Abraham the rich man knew all these people knew each other okay now the rich man says and I have five brothers and guess what they're not living their life any better than I have they're not living any differently than I have but I'm here and I can't change it I really would beg you father I beg you Send Lazarus so that they will know to live their lives better because I don't want them here. I don't want them here. When we pass from this life, we, we don't have a, a chance to, to go back and change anything. We're done. And we certainly do not have a chance to come back and and there's no, you know, you can't call up, I don't care how many Ouija boards you get out, you can't call up the Spirit and say, where are you at? 
And there's not going to be any spirits that are hovering over you and saying, don't do this because you'll end up where old, old rich man is. We don't know who the rich man was. It, it doesn't tell us who the rich man was. It could have been. I mean, it was obviously somebody who had some brothers. I don't know if he had more than five brothers. He might have. I don't know. I, I don't know. I don't think the text really tells us that. It just says, it says I have five brothers and, and I want you to go to them. So they don't come to this place. He might have had ten brothers and five of them may have been good. I don't know. But the thing is, is, he wanted his brothers to know. It was that important. Abraham said to him, they have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. And he said, no, Father Abraham. That's not going to convince them. That's not enough. I know they've got Moses and the prophets, but that's just not enough. I didn't listen to them. They're not going to listen either, but you know what? And he goes on to say, No, Father Abraham, but if one goes to them from the dead, they will repent. But he said to him, If they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be persuaded through one, though one rise from the dead. And that's the end of the story. I don't know if those five brothers ever heard they didn't hear from Lazarus. They didn't hear from Father Abraham. I don't know if they ever heard in their own weakness, their own, their own desires that, that when they went to their brother's funeral, if they did, I don't know if they, they realized you know, what, what their brother was trying to say to them in his life. But you know, that's the chance that we have. That's the only chance that we have. Because when we're gone, we're gone. And as Abraham told the rich man, there's no way you can go back. You know, when, when, when Abraham told the rich man, he said, no, Lazarus can't come to you to dip your, dip your tongue with, with his finger with cold water. No. You know what? The rich man could have got mad and just said, well, fine then. Turned around and walked off, but he didn't. He said, then please, go tell my brothers. Now, how important was family to this rich man? Now, I don't know what he did for him while he was on the earth. But he sure wanted to do something for him afterwards. I know each of us have people in our families that are probably lost. I do. And it's tough. We can do everything we can while we're on this earth. But you know what? If we don't do anything, we're guilty. We are completely guilty. So what do you do when your family just won't listen? I want to close out the sermon that way. You know what? I beg and I implore you to do everything you can for your family, but sometimes they just won't listen. So do you let them take you down with them? Do you let them encourage you to, to not be the faithful Christian that you can be? You encourage you let them encourage you. And, and I've talked to many people that are this way. Well, I can't become a Christian. I can't become a member of the church because my family. They'll turn me away. Jesus said himself that a prophet has no honor in his own, own hometown or his own family. Jesus told us to leave father and mother. God told us that in the beginning. He said, leave father and mother. <coughs> Those that turn against our own families are, are, are sad. But if you're turning against your family for Christ, you've won. 
You remember Jesus said there that when they came to him and they said, they said, Jesus, your mother and your brothers are, are, are outside. You know what Jesus said? He said, no, they're not. My mothers and my brothers are right here. They're here. Just like I'm saying today, you are my brothers and my sisters in Christ. My own brother and my own sister are not here today, but you are. You're my family. Proverbs 11, verse 29, He who troubles his own house will inherit the wind, and the fool will be servant to the wise of heart. When we think about our families, when we think about what we have to attribute to our families, when we think about our own lives, our own souls, our own destiny, do we want to be there where the rich man is begging for mercy, begging for just a cold drop of water, and do we want our brothers or our sisters or our mothers, fathers, aunts, uncles, do we want them to go there? If we don't, we better do something about it. We better do something about it. The only way we can is to be obedient to Christ. The Bible says we must hear the Word of God, must believe it, we must repent of our sins, turning away from the old man, confessing that Jesus is the true and living Son of God. We must come into contact with His blood and watery grave of baptism. That's how we become a Christian. That's how we become saved. The Bible tells me that. Acts chapter 2, verses 42 through 47. And we will be added to the church. There's nothing I can do for you today except for help you get there. God adds you to the church. God will help you. But friends, I'm as guilty as anybody else here today. If you've not done what you can for your family while you're here on this earth, you've missed it. Because you can't change it afterwards. And if you've got sin that has separated you, if you've been out of the church, you can't reach anybody out of the church. Think about that. You can't reach a single person if you're out of the church. What kind of influence can you have? You can't. I mean, could you imagine that rich man himself going back to his brothers? Hey, y'all don't want to go there because I, you know, whoo, I've seen it. It's terrible. You don't want to go there. But yet, the rich man wanted Lazarus, the one who was comforted in Abraham's bosom, to go. Why is that? He doesn't want to go himself. He wants the one that knew. He wants to know the one that knew peace, that knew Jesus, that knew Christ, that knew love, that's going to know that promised land of heaven. He wanted him to go. If you've not been faithful to Christ, if you've not been faithful in your life, if you've not done everything you can to bring others to Christ, today is a new starting point for you. Never imagined when I got that email, it would be the last thing my mother said to me. Don't leave this earth without saying what you need to say. I beg you today, if you're not a Christian, don't leave these doors today without becoming a Christian. But if you've not done all you need to do, let's get it right. The elders pray with you. I'll pray with you. The church will pray with you. James 5.16, effectual fervent prayer of righteousness, availeth much. Won't you come all together with stand, we'll sing.